welcome to the MUFG APEC Insights Podcast. The 26th Annual UN Climate Change Conference, or COP26, will see world leaders from governments, businesses, and advocates gather to agree on the strategies and actions needed that will fulfill the goals of the Paris Agreement and the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. In today's episode, Shiv Sivaraja, Head of Energy and Resources for Asia-Pacific, Asan Komen, Head of Emerging Markets Research for EMEA, and Michele Paduzzi, Director of Energy for Corporate Banking in EMEA, share what they would like to see discussed and resolved at this year's meetings, and how the outcome might impact the energy sector, as well as developed and emerging markets in the global energy transition. The following podcast is for information purposes only. It is intended for professional investors and eligible counterparties, and not for retail clients. Any content should not be regarded as an offer to conduct investment businesses or investment recommendations. So, Isan, can I start by asking you, what would success look like at COP26 this year? Thanks, Heather. So let me just state that success or failure at COP26 is probably not binary. The visibility of climate ambition is one view of success. Now, clear and solid climate action plans and policies will signal the easing of investor uncertainty over climate change and could accelerate capital flows towards climate solutions and the net zero transition. And just building on this, we believe that there are perhaps three core areas that we would be keen to see resolved. So first, the finalization of Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. Second, a resolution on financial provisions to emerging markets. And third, the realization of revised nationally determined contributions. Okay, can we take each of those in turn? You started with Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. Can you explain what it is and where it stands going into COP26? Sure. So Article 6 of the Paris Climate Agreement is designed to enable voluntary international cooperation on climate action. So in essence, it presents the possibility of trading emission reductions between countries and could provide the foundations for an international carbon market. Now, countries could not reach consensus on Article 6 at COP24, and it was hoped that COP25 would nail down guidance for Article 6, but the complexities and the contentions surrounding the issues does remain undecided. All right, thanks, Asan. So that's really useful, but why is Article 6 so important? Uh, Michele, perhaps you would like to take this one? Yeah, sure, thanks, Adir. Um, I think talking about Article 6 may be less glamorous than discussing investment in renewables and new technologies such as carbon capture and storage or green hydrogen, but it is going to play a significant role to reach the world's ambition to achieve net zero. It is not very realistic to think that many companies or countries will be able to achieve net zero without trading carbon emissions. I think trading will effectively allow a fairer transition by enabling those who can reduce emissions faster to transfer excess reductions to those who need to catch up. I really think COP26 can play a very important role in determining the shape and size of global emission markets by providing a unique opportunity to sit around the same table and overcome the challenges of creating a framework for emission trading. To give you an example, a lot of people are talking about the double counting issue, which is very material, and I think it is probably amongst the first one that need to be addressed. Okay, so Article 6 is important, but is there a chance of resolving it at COP26 this year? So the challenge is whether such an agreement will be legally binding or not. But we would say that there are three distinct parts that may not move forward simultaneously, but some form of agreement could be reached. So first, 
there is a prospect of cooperative approaches, that is the bilateral trading of carbon credits between countries using climate pledges. Second, there is non-market approaches, that is a framework across institutional arrangements that promotes emission reductions and resilience between the public and the private sector, so in essence, regulators and corporates. And third and finally is a formal mechanism wherein an established rules-based procedural global carbon market that supports emission reductions and sustainable development can be carved out. Noting here, Heather, that a challenge is that rules that make sense for one country, which may have a lot of mitigation activities, may not be acceptable to another country. And so we see COP26 discussions really needing to be whittled down on whether such a formal global mechanism can make intuitive sense over the medium term. Shiv, do we need Article 6 in order to develop a global carbon market? Um, as in a centralized one? No, not, not necessarily. Um, markets have evolved organically throughout human history and trading typically just concentrates on a few winners. Uh, look at stock markets, for example. There are plenty of them all over the world, but just a handful of them really dominate global trading. Um, however, I would say that you need to set some rules to the game before people feel comfortable playing the game. And that's where Article 6 is vital. Now, Heather, it goes without saying, but time is a hugely important factor in the energy transition. We do not have the luxury of sitting back and allowing the markets to develop organically, just in case it takes decades for functional markets to evolve. If COP26 can set some generally accepted best practices, it will really help speed up the process. Okay, let's move to the second point, financial provisions for emerging markets. What's the context here? So Heather, finance is a key part of all climate negotiations, although it has the potential to act as an enabler that can smooth out discussions and drive compromise, it can also be so contentious that it becomes a sticking point. So finance targets have two phases at the COP level. So first, an agreement to provide 100 billion US dollars by 2020 and through 2025, from developed to emerging markets. Second, a potentially new collective goal for the future, that is from 2025, 2026, for all countries, which is yet to be ironed out. Now, Heather, since finance is often used as leverage for greater ambition and transparency, if and when and how such promises are to be met is unclear. Indeed, challenge is that some countries believe that they cannot commit to future promises, that is, greater emissions reductions, if other countries have not kept historical promises. Indeed, the UN climate process has never even agreed on a common definition for climate finance, which signals that there is a lot of room for negotiation for both providers as well as recipients. Okay, so developed countries may have reservations, but what about emerging markets? Shiv, you work in Asia, home of several of these developing countries. How can they prove or convince of their sincerity? And how can COP26 convince them that the transition will be just? Yes, uh, a very delicate subject. Um, to my mind, the best thing developing nations can do to convince of their sincerity is to commit to a net zero target and then demonstrate their fidelity to that target via disclosure and interim targets. Committing to net zero appears inevitable for all countries, as it is the widely accepted overriding signal that your country is taking the transition seriously. Now to your second question, the concept of a just transition is an emotive and subjective topic, but let me share some thoughts that I think will help convince developing nations that their circumstance is being accounted for. Firstly, time. By when should these countries be at net zero? 
2050, 2060, 2070 even. It's worth noting that even the much vaunted IEA roadmap for the energy sector conceded that developing countries will need longer time horizons than developed countries. Recognition of that would be a strong signal to those developing countries. Secondly, pragmatism. Politicians are pragmatic leaders. They're dealing with complex, multifaceted and evolving contexts, and they won't make decisions that will hurt their economies or indeed their re-election chances. An example of a pragmatic approach could be recognition that economic growth requirements may mean increasing emissions in the short term before decreasing emissions, but always with a view to meeting their net zero target deadline. And this is actually what China has done. Thirdly, optionality allow for countries to be creative in developing their own pathway, which will in turn allow them to play to their own strengths and their circumstances. And Michele, what are the implications of COP26 for the upstream oil and gas sector? Can it help reconcile tension between OECD countries and petrostates? Um, well, Heather, um, I think we're living in a very interesting and challenging time for the sector. The future of upstream has never been so uncertain. We've been through many oil crises and even negative oil price, but the fundamental belief that we need hydrocarbons was never really questioned before. But now the world seems to be divided between those who believe we should get rid of hydrocarbons as fast as we can, and those who believe we can continue to extract them in the most sustainable way possible, obviously, and achieve the objectives set by the Paris Agreement. This unprecedented situation inevitably creates tension between the largest producers of hydrocarbons who rely heavily on oil and gas to sustain their fiscal balances and those who can more readily rely on solutions to decarbonize the upstream sector such as renewable energy or batteries or carbon capture and storage just to mention a few the upstream sector will need to decarbonize and rapidly reduce its scope one and two emissions but decarbonizing the upstream sector is a huge challenge there are simply not enough nature-based solutions or carbon capture and storage projects in the world. I think the role of governments is going to be super important for the future of the upstream sector. And COP26 can really help unite the most diverse policies under a common objective. Well, one of the key areas of divergence is coal. Shiv, in Asia, it is hard to deny the role that coal continues to play, doesn't it? Absolutely, Heather. Um, and, and like it or not, China, India, and Indonesia, to just name a few, they all rely on coal for affordable electricity, jobs, taxes, and energy security. And frankly, the current gas prices have made access to coal even more important in many economies across Asia and even outside of Asia. At a more philosophical level, there is an argument that says that because coal helped power the development of nearly every mature economy, Taking away this cheap, abundant option from developing countries is actually unfair. It's the equivalent of the rich countries closing the door behind them. That argument may have weight in terms of the human concept of justice. However, the counter argument is, of course, that nature operates outside of this human concept and will not accommodate it. Having said that, whatever comes out of COP26, we have already seen the global banking, capital and insurance markets walk away from the thermal coal industry in droves over the last two years. With that in mind, liquidity available to develop new coal mines and power plants will become increasingly constrained, making it imprudent to rely on the industry in the medium and long term for anybody. 
But for me, Heather, I can't help but feel that instead of focusing on sectoral constraints right now, I would rather see all countries adopt a net zero target, but then be given the freedom to find their own way of meeting it. Of course, with the appropriate checks and balances to ensure they're delivering on interim targets along the way. In theory, this will help stop new coal-fired power and perhaps lead to the greening of existing coal-fired power, for example, via carbon capture and storage solutions or mixing with ammonia, et cetera, et cetera. Specific sectoral restrictions may be more appropriate in the future when viable alternates to, to the current energy sources are widely available and there are less excuses to not use them. And what about the rest of the world, Michele? The picture in other parts of the world is very different, although I believe the world seems to be generally struggling to reduce coal demand. Western countries are arguably less reliant on thermal coal than parts of Asia, and I think they will be in a position to phase out coal first, thanks to access to uh, cheaper and locally produced gas, but also the decreasing cost of renewable energy. The outlook may be, however, quite different for metallurgic coal. I would expect demand for the coal required by the industrial sector to be more resilient. We shouldn't forget that the global steel industry will play a key role in decarbonizing the power sector, for example, by providing the steel required for wind turbines. Okay. Isan, what about the final point, nationally determined contributions realizations or NDC realizations for short? Uh, what's that all about? So the Paris Agreement requests that parties submit new or updated NDCs in 2020. Now, in theory, they're only supposed to involve upward revisions, that is, be more ambitious than previous communications. Although many countries have submitted updated NDCs, not all of them have shown, in fact, an improvement. So the United Nations will release another synthesis report before COP26, showing the aggregate improvement of updated NDCs. However, as of the 31st of July of this year, which was a cutoff date for inclusion into the synthesis report, only around 110 countries had submitted an update out of around 186 countries involved in COP26. So 38 countries, in fact, demonstrated no change at all. So to demonstrate success, we gauge any amendments with any actionable steps, including duration, for countries to execute the NDCs, which format it will take, as well as any inclusion or adaptation. And Esan, maybe I can add something here. Look, I can't generalize all the reasons for countries to not submit an update. But I would posit that no one likes to put forward a plan that they're not confident they can deliver on. So to use an analogy, better to not submit the exam paper than submit it knowing you're going to fail. So as mentioned earlier, some latitude for developing countries to adopt more modest and pragmatic targets, which reflect their economic and developmental circumstances, may make them more willing to put in updated NDCs. Now, I am not saying that anyone should get a free pass or that our planet can afford for some countries to not get on board, but this is a transition, i.e. it cannot happen overnight. There are so many variables and people are typically always apprehensive about change and the unknown. So it may make sense to get people on board now, or countries on board now, I should say, and then help them shape their journey as the wider market develops. In time, as technology and rules mature, it'll be much harder to justify not being fully engaged. I think that's right, Shiv, and let me add that it is going to be harder to catch up for companies that are based in countries where governments have not yet submitted NDCs. And there is a risk these companies will lag behind most of their peers. Everyone expects COP26 to be all about actions more than previous COP meetings. And I think one of the main objectives of COP26 
will be to encourage more countries to make net zero commitments. And, uh, and hopefully over time, this will help create a level playing field. So uh, perhaps going back to your analogy, Shiv, COP26 should encourage more students to submit their exam paper. Okay, gentlemen, thank you for that. So we're a bank. So let me close off by asking all of you uh, to share some closing comments on the implications of COP26 for investors and businesses. Why don't you kick us off, Esan? So some analysis to share. So we have broken down IOCs into three segments of energy transition pathways that we label prolong, prepare, and pivot, which signal that companies that have been front running and have articulated publicly major long-term transition pivots towards executing change have in fact been underperforming from a share price perspective and thus lagging prolong and prepare companies. Now, one narrative could be that investors would like to see more from those companies front running change for them to become more comfortable that their business model is structurally changing. Another narrative for us is that investors offer now at least rewarding entities in the prolonged camp, which tend to offer higher dividends per share. Thank you, Isan. Uh, Michele, what about you? Um, I think on the one hand, one of the greatest benefits of COP26 will be to help reduce the uncertainty around demand and supply scenarios. There is a huge gap between base cases and two degree cases. And that's a real headache for companies, but also for banks and energy consultants. The difference can be up to 25, 30 million barrels of oil per day in some cases. And it is going to be very hard for everybody to continue to operate in an efficient way with such a high degree of uncertainty. But then, um, on the other hand, a potential side effect of COP26 is that if everyone set ambitious goals and comply to their targets, then production of hydrocarbons will likely decline rapidly. I mean, we may run into a situation where supply will peak sooner than demand. Oil inventory levels are going down rapidly already, and there is a risk that they will not be replaced quickly enough to sustain demand in the longer term. All right, thank you, Michele. Uh, last but not least, Shiv? Uh, well, Heather, one of the most exciting new fields in finance today is transition finance, which is the, the financing of brown industries as they become more green by adherence to science-based targets. Financial institutions around the world are extremely keen to drive this as one, it will be a key determinant in the success of the entire energy transition, and two, the potential market size for transition finance is enormous. So that begs the question, why hasn't it taken off yet? Well, the rules of the game remain unclear. Simple as that. What we would appreciate from COP26 is more clarity. For instance, can we accept universal metrics and individual thresholds, or must both the metric and the thresholds be universal? One size fits all is simple, but I question whether it's realistic and fair. If we can accept different thresholds for different countries at COP26, then it would help the global banking community justify having different transition finance standards for a company in, say, India versus Germany. In a nutshell, the main questions under debate for transition finance are, at a company level, how much transition is enough and in what time frame? All right. Thank you, gentlemen. I think the questions of how and by when underpin the entire situation. And we're all hopeful that COP26 will help deliver answers that move the energy transition forward in a material way. Thank you all for sharing your insights. And we look forward to having you again. Take care. Thank you for listening to the MUFG APEC Insights Podcast. 
This episode is available on Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify. Rate, review, and subscribe, and reach out to an MUFG sales representative for business inquiries.